Welcome to the Positivity Podcast, where we explore the skills and strategies of personal development with cutting-edge researchers, authors, entrepreneurs, and experts. I'm always super interested as a learner about what innovation is happening in the K-12 system and how I can apply that to my own development. Ted Dintersmith is on the forefront of this work. He's got a really unique background that's part VC, part author, part educator, and part filmmaker. So he thinks a lot about the future of technology, future of employment, and how we prepare students for that future and how to get the word out. His latest work is Most Likely to Succeed, a book and documentary about the teachers who he believes are truly preparing our students for the 21st and 22nd centuries. We talk about how these teachers help cultivate skills like facing ambiguity, creativity, innovation, independence, and the role that technology plays in it all. This is an awesome episode, and I've definitely been rethinking my development since our conversation. Ted, thank you so much for joining me. I've been I'm I've been really really looking forward to our talk both because of your background in entrepreneurship and funding a lot of entrepreneurs as well as your deep dive into education with your book with Tony Wagner, Most Likely to Succeed. So, the first question I have for you, and thank you so much for coming on too by the way. <laughs> That's great to be here. The first question I have for you is what sparked your interest in the book and why did you write it? Well, it goes back, you know, several years, but but I spent most of my career in in venture capital, and so there were a couple things that came out of that for me. One was how fast automation is eliminating structured jobs from the economy, and so if you come out of school and you're not innovative, creative, and bold, you're probably going to be unemployed. And, and so that was one insight. And then the second one was. In sort of an anecdotal way, that oftentimes the more impeccable the academic credentials of somebody, the the more they struggle with the ambiguity of the startup world. Um, and then, kind of as I watched my kids move through school, I initially observed, kind of along the lines of, "Gee, it's almost as though school is trying to push the creativity out of kids." And then I started researching, and I realized that it's there's no almost to that statement that that's an express design principle of our education. Model. Now, it goes back 120 years ago, but in fact, when it was established, the, the goal was to train people for the assembly line, and the last thing you want on an assembly line is an out-of-the-box, bold, creative thinker. And so we sort of live with and limp along with that model today, you know, but I can perceive this massive collision between an, an economy and a society that's begging for the skills of innovation and a school system that actually tries to grind them out of kids. And so that sort of launched me on this, this journey. How did you connect with Tony Wagner? Can you tell us a little bit about Tony and why you wanted to partner up for this book? Well, I, I talked to a bunch of people. Initially, I was, I was spending most of my time in Virginia, and I just started meeting people, reading books, talking to people, and a whole bunch of people kept pointing me to him. And so, you know, I was in Boston at the time frequently, um, and I just sort of cold emailed him, Said, you know, I'm going to be there in a couple of weeks and get you for breakfast. And, you know, we met and just sort of connected on every dimension. And it was an interesting combination because he's 
got a really deep background in education and I have a deep background in innovation. And so, you know, between the two of us, we had good perspective on what's going to happen. So I'm hearing three big things that you're mentioning should be taught. Innovation, dealing with ambiguity, and creativity. What are the jobs of the future that in, what are the jobs of the future that require these things going to look like and how are they different than what exists now? Well, I think that the interesting thing is that, that none of us what to look like. You know, the, 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 the rate of decay of existing jobs is so fast. You know, I think it's an accelerating curve. And so if you look at, I, I went through this exercise the other day. I looked at the 10 biggest job categories in the U.S. And for each one, you can point to three or four startups that want to eliminate all the workers. And so... I think we're going to see just more of what we've seen in the decade where, you know, if, if 10 years ago you and I had said, you know, smartphone app developer as a job, we would have looked at each other like, what in the world is that? Because, you know, the iPhone only came out seven and a half years ago. You know, and so I think what we're going to see is that just the, the things come and go much more quickly than they ever did in the past. And so, so somebody that's bold and innovative can learn on the fly, is willing to dive into something without knowing everything, you know, they're going to have lots of great opportunities. And somebody that's spent... You know, this is a particularly bad time to have spent 10 years training to become a radiologist. And, you know, because radiology is, is the, a perfect example of something that, that a computer is going to do better than a doctor will do. You know, that's just a matter of a few years before we're not going to need radiologists. Could you give some other examples of jobs that are going to be obsolete, potentially? You know, you look at the squeeze on lawyers, right? And, you know, that, that it used to be if you got, went to a top law school, you were set for life. You might not like that life, but you were set for life. Now, there are pretty high unemployment rates, even from our top law schools. And, you know, essentially, if you can write a really detailed job description that says these are the things you're going to have to do on a fairly regular basis, I think that's prime territory for an automated solution. And so, Essentially, that if you can create and invent ways you can add to your organization or improve your community, those are the skills, the jobs, the people that are going to thrive. And the people that just are conditioned to jump through hoops, they'll often say how hard it is to get a job. And then when you ask them what they've done to get one, they'll say, you know, I filled out 85 applications and I've sent out 60 letters. And you say, well, what else have you done? And they'll say, well, that's what I've done. I mean, that's what I'm supposed to do in the job process. And, you know, they don't think boldly about how they can get to the right employer. Let's jump into those three skills you mentioned. Innovation, dealing with ambiguity, and creativity. What is innovation in your mind? How would you, how would you define it? And how does one teach it? Well, innov innovation, it's a, the, comp the, the topic of innovation is complicated beyond words. And so, um, you know, to me... Uh, an entrepreneur, we'll start with entrepreneur. An entrepreneur is somebody that can visualize a world that will be different from the world that would exist if they didn't step in. And, and I think one of the things that sort of handicaps entrepreneurship in schools is that all too often it's associated with business. But the reality is you can be an entrepreneurial history professor, an entrepreneurial musician, an entrepreneurial playwright. Um, and so what, what an entrepreneur does is innovate. And so an innovation is something new and different pulling together resources, inventions, breakthroughs that shift the trajectory of the world. I mean, I, I, you know, that's the way I visualize this, is the world's proceeding on its own path, 
And if you step in and do something, that path is going to deflect to some extent. And so, you know, and I think that's the skill. It's just an essential skill that underlies everything that, that kids need to be encouraged to develop. And it actually matches really well the set of skills and characteristics you observe in the typical five-year-old. You know, the typical five-year-old asks a million questions, is bold, you know, is fearless, you know, will try new things, will think of a million different options or approaches. And, you know, those are the characteristics you love to preserve through their school years, yet what really happens is that those are the characteristics that disappear. And, and so the, the concern is, is gigantic, right, which is if, if every five-year-old starts the school experience with the exact characteristics they need to do well in a, in a bold, innovative world, but we drill those out of them, you know, we're going to be left holding a lot of empty bags. And, um, you know, and so when you look at how many kids come through school conditioned to just jump through hoops, who then go to college and take out $100,000 or more of debt, and then write those 75 letters and don't get a job, and so they end up taking on some 32-hour-a-week minimum wage job and, and fall behind on their loan payments. You know, that kid is not in for a great life. I mean, that is a very challenging set of circumstances to have in front of you when you're 24 or 25. So if I'm an 18-year-old college student or if I'm right out of college and I'm listening to this right now, I hear the terms you're talking about is a curiosity, a boldness, and an ability to try things out in a sense, almost being a futurist and seeing the future, it's, it's, a, it's hard to do that on my own. You know, how, how should I go about looking how to develop these qualities within myself? Well, I think that there, it starts with sort of this core confidence. And I, and I think that what the great entrepreneurs I've, you know, worked with have had in common is a certain degree of fearlessness you know, they don't agonize about what somebody else will think about them. They don't agonize about what could go wrong. They know things will go wrong, but they're very confident that they can sort through it and redirect, solve problems, and come out better for it. And so I think the more we have that grain of fearlessness in, in our 18-year-olds that just say, you know, damn it all, I'm going to be able to figure this out. And, you know, when somebody says, oh, but you have to get that college degree – Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but they don't take it as a given. They don't just blindly pile up $150,000 worth of debt to get a credential that may not be that helpful. I, I, I love yeah. what you're doing. And, and you know, one of the anecdotes I relate is that you know, I've spent 25 years in venture. For the first 20 years, if I ask a startup company how they hire their new you know, entry-level software engineers, they would always start with what colleges they recruit at. Mm -hmm. you know, today, they look at GitHub. You know, there are very authentic measures and, and, and ways to present and, and depict your programming capabilities. And so somebody that goes through a program like yours that comes out as a really capable programmer, I don't think they're going to be lacking for a job because they didn't check the box off on a four-year degree. Yeah. It, it's not a prereq. The work that you create can be the proof that you're employable and that you can perform. Yeah, and it should be, right? I mean, what, mm -hmm. you know, that's... That's one of the questions I have about school is, shouldn't school be encouraging kids to get good at developing things that other people could look at and say, this person knows what they're doing? Instead, school is about you know, performing well on artificial proxies. And that's not good enough in today's world. And so if you, just because you're good at um, taking tests or 
memorizing vocabulary words or factoring polynomials quickly by hand, you know, th those aren't skills that the workplace or, or society really values. And so, you know, I think we need to get school back to a point where it's aligned with life instead of where it is today, which is aligned with the, the needs of Princeton statisticians that design these standardized tests. How do, how should educator, educators engender a sense of fearlessness and grow that, that quality of fearlessness within people? Well, you know, a lot of times, you know, it starts with, um, you know, the devil's in the details on any educational experience. And, you know, I visit a fair number of schools now and websites, school heads, everybody will tell me how, you know, the, the trendy word of the, of the decade, I think for better or worse, is grit. You know, that, that we really need our kids to have grit. We know that's really important. But then I really push them and I say, tell me about your grading schemes in your classes. You know, if a kid two-thirds of the way through the class has a C, is there any way they can get an A in that, in that class? And oftentimes they can't. And, and so what you find is that a student that takes a risk on an exam or does something different or tries, you know, all the time I'll hear kids say, well, I could have written a really bold essay, but if my teacher didn't like it, they might have given me a really bad grade, and then that might screw me for the course. And so mm. instead, I'll write a safe essay. You know, um, and so I think you find this alignment of you know, not terribly challenging assignments with increasingly risk-averse students just trying to do you know, some variant of uh, what they learned in class or guess what's on the teacher's mind. And, you know, the, the, the example I use is history class, right? You could teach history the same way you teach computer programming. You know, you mm -hmm. could say, I'm grading you in this history class, not on a bunch of quizzes about facts, which unfortunately is the way a lot of history classes are graded, or I'm grading you on three-timed essays and uh, taking the average. You know, you could say, find something in the period we're studying that intrigues you, really dive into it. Try to understand it and come up with your own theory about how it shapes your world today. And you know what? You're going to take draft after draft, and you're going to run it by your fellow classmates. You're going to run it by me. You're going to find other adults that might give me a sounding board. But you're just going to keep iterating until you get something you're really proud of. And we will grade you on the final product and not how you got there. Just as in the workplace, by the way, if somebody tried three early versions of a piece of code that didn't work and came up on try number 18 with something really great, nobody would say your performance is, is average or bad because your early versions didn't work. You'd say, my God, this kid tried a bunch of bold ideas, found one that worked, stuck with it, and got a great result. And, and you just don't see that mindset in our schools. And, and that's the exact mindset we need to see. And it's not just an engineering or computer science mindset. It can, it can apply to any field or any topic. The way I, what I really like about the way that you sort of <laughs> framed that is that it's also giving students ownership to be bold and fearless and make a claim off of, <laughs> you know, in that example, hundreds of years of history. And so, you know, kind of summing up what you said, it seems like it's giving students their own voice to really pursue something new, creating experiences where they're getting feedback feedback from classmates and other people and, and really creating an assignment that frames an opportunity for them to be bold instead of just perform under someone else's criteria. Right. 
And I, I think you know that, that, that most really great ideas at some point look really dumb. And you know, so if you're operating from the point of view that you can't afford to look bad, you can't afford to do anything that somebody might view as incoherent or incomplete or wrong in some way, you will inevitably be safe. And, and if you're given an environment where that's encouraged, and, and I think that's when, one of the things that's really important is you know, that, that if your peers are reviewing your work, let's say you do something and the idea just doesn't make sense. It's, it's a great life lesson for the peers who look at it, not to jump on it and say, oh, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, but to, to redirect their perspective on it to say, well, what, what's the interesting thing about this idea? It may not hang together. It may not be, you know, convincing to you, but what's interesting about it? You know, where could this person run with this that might be really productive or insightful or different? And it's, you know, so, so when you have the peers involved in the review process, they get good at constructive criticism and feedback and collaboration, but it also sensitizes them to the fact that it's okay to try things that don't make sense. You know, it's, it's you know, as I said, for everything I can think of that would ended up being a great outcome, it's, it went through some amount of time lost in the woods, looking like one of the dumbest things you could ever imagine. And, you know, and that just goes with, that's, that's I think, in many ways, the essence of entrepreneurship is you're willing to dive into something and try some things that are different. I, I'll give you a great anecdote. So my venture firm, we're one of the early venture firms. We were started in 1970. And one, you know, a few years back, we went through and looked at our, the trajectory of our deals. And we said, which of our past investments were kind of uniformly endorsed? You know, everybody looked at it and said, this is a no-brainer. we got to make this investment. And which were incredibly controversial. And, and most people, I think, would believe that the ones that had unanimity and support would be the ones that did the best. And the ones that were really controversial would have been the ones that struggled. It was the exact opposite. And, and the ones that everybody thought were good ideas were so mainstream that there were probably 15 other people doing it, and they didn't challenge or disrupt. The ones that had two people in the room saying, this is brilliant, and three people saying, this will never work in a million years, ended up being the companies that were gigantic. And, and to me, there's a huge amount of wisdom that comes from that observation, that that if you're doing something and some of the people around you don't think this is really dumb, you're probably not pushing yourself hard enough. Yeah. I almost like that as a rule. <laughs> you know, if you're trying to be bold and pursue this type of innovative innovation and fearlessness to make sure that two people think it's brilliant and three people think it's bad. And if not, maybe try to push a little harder. <laughs> yeah. You know, and if you're suddenly in an environment where that's okay, I mean, that's what ultimately is why big companies fail, is they begin to get so, you know, hardening of the arteries, so bureaucratic and so risk averse that nobody wants. I, I, early on, I ran a startup division within a bigger company, and they, I was, you know, the vice president of all of communications for my company. So he was like the parent of, of all these divisions. And he had on his desk an ad that was being run by one of the sister divisions in this company attacking my, my division's products. You know, it's like, I said, are we really thinking of paying money to run an ad critical of our own company's products? But, but that's what happens in companies is, that, is if you try something. By the way, my division was trying to process 
signals digitally instead of in an analog forces the way the universe ultimately ended up to, you know <laughs> become universal digital signal processing. But but the people entrenched really don't like anything different. And so what happens is if you live in an environment or a world, which can happen in school, it can happen in business, it can happen anywhere, where daring to be different is so resisted by the existing infrastructure, you will end up with, you know, risk aversion, incremental, and ultimately be eclipsed. And I think that's that's the sort of set of circumstances and conditions we need to provide our kids or ones that are supportive. And by the way, our teachers as well, you know, because teachers are hammered today. I mean, I am a big, big defender and proponent of our teachers. And, you know, we tend to blame every ill in education on our teachers. But, you know, when you look at the accountability schemes that have been, you know, thrust on them, they are some of the stupidest moves that we could ever imagine making as a, as a national or state policy. And to see people who actually believe that that's a sensible way to, to improve our education system. So speaking of teachers, and you mentioned creating a good environment, it sounds like one of the key components of a good environment to you is rewarding boldness and being different and challenging the current structure. Um, what are some other environments, qualities that compose the ideal classroom? That, you know, and I, I've got this film that I, I, you know, organized and funded called Most Likely to Succeed that dives into this, you know, it tracks these ninth grade kids that are in a school that just doesn't look like any kind of a normal school. And you see these things that are just different, but, but a couple of them that just could happen tomorrow in any classroom in America, but, but you know, won't, it may take us a while to get there, but, but in one of the classes, the teacher says on the first day of class, he says, my goal by the end of this semester is to say nothing in this class, that this will be an entirely student-directed discussion, and that if we can get to a point where over five minutes, the students are doing all the talking, the students are debating with each other, the students are running the class, this will be a beautiful thing. In this particular school, the students have going to work on. They, they don't listen to lectures. They, they set ambitious goals for themselves. They, they have to learn as a means of completing the goals. They are not graded with exams, but they have public displays of their work. Peers review and critique each other. Um, and their final assessment at the end of each semester is driven largely by their own perspective. So they have a review in front of their teacher, their parents, and other students that say, this is what I think I did really well. This is what I think I did poorly. This is what I need to, to improve on. This is what I'm proud of. And so if you look at that where it, it really is, it's sort of like a Ptolemy-Copernicus revolution where does the, does, does the solar system revolve around the, the teacher or does it revolve around the student? And I think if you can begin to put the center of the universe as being the student, you start to have magical things happen. How is that done well and how is that done not well? What? You know, so teachers, I think one of the things that, um, you know, I mean, we all go into the school process as adults, tracking it back to how we learned when we were students. And so almost every adult today learned the same way grandparents and great-grandparents learned, which we sat in a room, the teacher, you know, delivered the content in an organized fashion, the students take notes, 
The students have a textbook that organizes everything on their behalf. They study, they cram, they take an exam. And if they can recall a lot or do low-level procedural problems that closely resemble what their homework assignment is, you are an excellent student. And you know the flaw in that, of course, is that you can get that information from any one of a million sources today. And, and most of them will be better than what the typical teacher can deliver when they stand in front of the class. So I think the teacher that re-envisions their role in the class and that, is, that it, when they're at home, instead of planning a lesson that's around what the teacher is going to say, they plan a lesson around really thought-provoking challenges for the kids. That's a teacher that's going to be highly effective. Because if you give kids, uh, and I'll give you a very specific example, but if you mm-hmm. give kids a, a really thought-provoking assignment that, that gets them thinking, you know, those kids lock in and get so engaged. So, so particularly for your audience, for your followers, this, this would be a good example. Is the best math and computer science exercise I've seen in going to a, a fair number of schools in the last five years was not in a math class and not in a computer science class, but it was, it was in a social studies class. And so the teacher says to the students essentially this, I want you to work. You can work on your own or in small groups. You can use whatever resources you want, but I want you to come up with your own way to predict what the world's population will be in the year 2100. And then I want you to organize a presentation and deliver it to your classmates and be prepared to answer their questions and criticisms. And and likewise, when they present their approach and their result, I want you to be in a position to constructively critique what they're doing. And by the way, you can get your answer with paper and pencil or with a low, you know, an Excel spreadsheet, or you can code it, which many of these kids, by the way, wrote their own code to make their projections. And watching what happened was incredible, not, not the least of which is, you know, the, the kid after kid and even teachers will say, oh, wait, I thought math was different. I thought there was only one right answer in math. And the reason we generally think there's only one right answer in math is that we don't teach math. We teach low-level computation. And what's powerful about this on the computer programming front is that the kids learn to code as a means of accomplishing their own goals. So what one student group, for instance, did something I would view as incredibly creative, which is they partitioned the world's population into um, religion segments. And then they tracked the data on the underlying net growth rate by religion. And then they cranked through and, and projected out what the overall population would be in 2100 by tracking, you know, Catholic and Muslim and Hindu and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and, you know, and then they actually wrote some code to do it. They didn't use a, a spreadsheet for that. But they were so excited about that. And when you show that to PhDs in math modeling, they will say, wow, that's incredibly creative. I mean, that's really interesting. You know, is it right or wrong? You know, there, it's the beauty of that problem, right? There is no right or wrong. But there are degrees of creativity and insight that kids can bring as teams. That was a ninth grade class, but that would actually stand up to, as you would see in many graduate schools of, of you know, whatever, you know, sociology or social studies, or, you know, that we're trying to take on that same problem. But, but it just opens up math to being much more creative and encourages kids to learn how to code as a means of completing something that they have ownership in defining. So if students are doing these types of projects 
and grades are maybe not as prominent in the classroom as they can, or, or evaluations. How is that going to affect the way that students go about searching for jobs and how are recruiters going to evaluate students? Okay, so let's just follow with that. This is a perfect time. Your timing on the question is excellent. Is let's say a kid went through school and they did a whole set of things like project the world's population in the year 2100. You know, they did, just like we were talking earlier about coming up with a really creative history essay on an event they cared about and tracing its impact to today's world. And they did a whole set of those things and they put that together in a digital portfolio and they sent that to a portfolio, you know, an prospective employer or a college admissions officer. And they said, just look at three or four things and ask me about them. Well, you know, like, would I rather look at a kid who's done a set of those types of problems and could explain what they did and why versus a transcript? Well, I would take that in a minute over a transcript. And I would like kids, you know, like my own kids in terms of thinking about college, I'd say, hey, a college that's looking at it that way, that's a college that's going to be really interesting. I mean, why, why wouldn't you on balance, look for a college that's trying to find kids that can think outside of the box and do really creative, authentic work. Um, the, the, the system hasn't evolved to there. If a school changed and did it entirely that way, they'd be, you know, in some ways, you know, pushing against the, you know, sort of, sort of swimming upstream instead of downstream. But that said, there are an awful lot of colleges now that I think would rather see real projects from kids. You know, MIT is taking maker lab portfolios. Um, you know, Bard looks for just essays. You don't even have to submit anything out of your transcript. And for sure, an employer, you know, if you, back to this project the world's population, you know, you could, you could probably, if you did a great job of that, got excited, learned a lot of math in the process, learned how to extrapolate, learned curve fitting, learned what eigenvalues are, learned, you know, statistical modeling techniques, learned how to import data, you, you got good at that. You tell me you couldn't find employers that would find that skill set incredibly interesting. Even, even if you're still in high school, you couldn't get an after, you know, after school or summer job somewhere. I have a feeling you could. But the, <laughs> yeah. problem, but the problem is, right, is that we don't ask our kids to do that. We ask our kids to get really good at factoring polynomials by hand. You know, now, now, tell me one company in the world that wants to hire somebody because they're almost as good at a smartphone on factoring polynomials by hand. And that's the tragedy of school, is that we insist that kids get really good on things just because they're convenient for the test designers, not because they're useful in life. You know, you can't do a standardized test that will look at different creative ways to project the world's population. But you sure as hell can fill a standardized test with, you know, lots of neat little tidbit types of math problems like factor x squared minus 2x plus 1. You know, it's like, okay, you know, like, great, except, by the way, no scientist or engineer ever does that. You know, and... and you know, it's like we, we subject kids to this battery of stuff in school that's really no better than, than crossword puzzles and Sudoku just because it's easy, shit to, easy, sorry about that, easy stuff to test. And, and you know, it's like, like why, you know, why is it right to insist that kids get really good at stuff they'll never use in life? You know, it's like I'm scratching my head on that one. I yet to figure out the answer to that, nor found anybody in a senior position of education that can give me a good case for that. And I think the way that that assignment to project the world population is designed, it kind of 
fills in the two other needs of education that you mentioned. Innovation was the first one, but the assignment itself is ambiguous because there's no, you know, get to this defined answer. You're, it's, a, it's an open ending that next requires their creativity, which are the other components that you mentioned. Right, right. And, you know, and it leads itself to experimentation. But, you know, but, you know, what's so interesting, right, as well, is that because there's no right or wrong answer, you know, there's some answers that are so implausible that if somebody came up and said in 2100, the world's population will be 60 billion I have a feeling that if we were on the critiquing side, we could say there must have been some flaw in your calculations or assumptions. But, you know, there's a pretty broad range. I mean, any answer from zero to 13, 14 billion is probably a pretty defensible answer. And, and, th and then what in this particular case they did is they then would say it sort of troubleshot everybody's answers to make sure there was no fundamental flaw in the assumptions or calculations. Then they had this really interesting debate about what's it going to mean for them to grow up in a world that has 15 billion people, you know, twice today's population, or how in the world could you have come up with zero? But, but guess what? I mean, you, you and I, I mean, anybody could, could look at a kid who said it's going to be zero billion and here's why, you know, that, you know, it's like you, you can make a case. I mean, absolutely you can make a case for that. And that leads to a whole different set of discussions about, about what does it mean to, you know, visualize a world that full of uncertainty and full of all sorts of unpredictable events. And how do you capture that? You know, and then you'll get some kid you know, or teacher that says, okay, let's now think of this not in terms of a point prediction, but let's now think of a range. You know, let's think of assumptions we might make that could lead to a different range. You know, like, so now let's generate a probability distribution of the population. And you know, suddenly you turn this one thing from a few days into this rich month-long, two-month-long totally immersive experience that is taking ninth grade kids and putting them probably in a position to go head on head against a lot of graduate students on something that, by the way, is directly relevant to, you know, if you're a company predicting demand for your product or you're a company predicting, trying to come up with a model for where you should have more retail store locations or you're a nonprofit trying to predict your fundraising potential. You know what I mean? Like there are a million different examples that build on that. You know, and, and it's like, okay, so why don't we fill our schools with those types of challenges that then make kids want to learn what curve fitting and extrapolation is instead of pounding them on, you know, least fairs curve fitting, but never telling them why they need to learn it. And, and by the way, they don't even get to least fairs curve fit, least squares curve fitting because that's statistics. And we, of course, say you can't, you really shouldn't take statistics. That's for the remedial kids. You should take calculus where you will spend nine months doing integrals and derivatives by hand, which I can tell you for an absolute fact, no adult in academia or industry does derivatives or integrals by hand anymore. So again, we insist kids are really good at something, you know, that they, they'll never use, but it's just, just convenient for the test people. And what I really like about the, the content in that specific exercise is it's building the discussion and the sort of in-depth conversation about the content off of the students' content that they produce instead of the teachers. So everyone has so much more ownership over the lesson. I'd love yep. to hear some other examples of really well-designed lessons like the population one. Well, you know, it's, it's in some ways, um, you know, it's, it's almost infinite in terms of what we can come up with. But in, 
and the kids are so many kids are really excited about sports. And so excited about what? Sorry. Sport sports. You know, kids love sports. You know, um, I'm backing a guy that does this nonprofit called NBA is a National Basketball Association math hoops. And he teaches teaches kids fundamental math operations, so division, multiplication, addition, subtraction, percentages, decimals. He does it all in terms of collaborative in-class board game. Now, now that's sort of helping kids, typically grade three through seven, get really good at their core math operations, because I think we'd all agree, no matter where you are in the education spectrum, that, that it's not really an okay thing to say that a kid can just look up seven times three on a calculator, so they don't need to know you know, simple math multiplication tables. You really need to know that stuff, you know, to be, you know, kind of fl fluent in, in modern world, you know, adulthood. Um, but, but back to sports. I mean, you, we could come up with 50 examples in the next hour, but I'll give you one. You know, you're in the middle of basketball season. Your team is about to play somebody else's team. It could be JV girls team, could be varsity girls, could be boys, could be anything. But your basketball team is about to play a different school. Predict what the final score will be, but use math to do it. Come up with your own creative approach to predict that final score. Go. Okay? So how do you do it, right? Well, you know, like that suddenly is, you tell me that the average class, particularly in an inner city high school or junior high, isn't really interested in basketball. I mean, these... You know, there's a lot, of, I mean, kids everywhere are passionate about basketball. Seeing that math is really relevant to basketball is really interesting. Come up with your own creative way to predict a score, which, you know, like begs for all sorts of things. You know, you can do something simple like, um, you know, our average score for the season is 62 points. Their average score for the season is 59 points. Therefore, I'm predicting 62-59, we're going to win. You know, not a crazy way to do it. Not something you'd say that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen, but you sure as heck are going to see other kids do something more interesting, more involved, more begging for calculation. You know, but but and kids start to get into it, and, and what you'll see is these kids don't let go. You know, it's not as though, okay, we had this assignment, screw it, I got something done, and then on to the next thing. It's actually really thoughtful. You know, it's, it makes you think, yeah. you know, and so... So you can go, and it's, it's the whole missing piece. I mean, what, you know, I'm an investor in Flatiron School, so you probably, probably mm -hmm. know those guys. And I, I, love, I love what you guys are doing to, to teach kids computer programming skills. But one of the, I think, hidden powerful things about learning how to code is you're actually learning how to structure problems. And, and whether you actually become somebody that writes code for a career or not, I think the whole process of formulating an ambiguous problem, laying out your assumptions, beginning to think of how everything fits together, it really is, it begs for a systems perspective on things. And you, you can't, it's, it's my issue about AP computer science, right, is it gives you these toy assignments. But, but you know, it's like, I feel like oftentimes AP computer science is where a kid's interest in programming goes to die instead of, instead of takes flight. Whereas, whereas some of the other examples I'm thinking about where if you want to do something complicated, you can't just use a cookbook for it. You actually have to write the code yourself. I just backed uh, – this film is not out yet, but it will be out certainly in the next 12 months. But uh, a woman named Leslie Chilcott approached me a year ago. She was the producer of An Inconvenient Truth. And she wanted to film this global competition that has high school – teams of high school girls 
So, so you, your audience will love this. Identify a problem in your community that you think is important and you care about. Teach yourself how to code and develop your own smartphone app to address that problem. Go. And so you have these teams of young girls all over the world trying to come up with problems that they identify, something that troubles them that they see in their community that needs help. And then they say, it's up to us to figure out that problem, come up with a creative solution, and then code it and deploy it on smartphone apps anywhere. And, and there was one team from Nigeria, you know, doing, you know, the problem they identified was heaps of trash that go uncollected on the street become festering points for disease. And so they developed this smartphone app so that if you saw large piles of garbage, you could report it and get it cleaned up. You know, a, a team at a top private school in Boston area, um, Phillips, Acad Phillips Academy Andover, you know, had this, I, I don't have the exact, I can't remember the exact name of the app, but it was kind of an anonymous app where you, you could say something positive to somebody and they wouldn't know who said it, but they'd get positive feedback. I think it was mm. called pop, pop or something. Totally different problem, right? But you watch these kids get so excited about solving a problem, but also um, learning how to code. And, and you know, so it's, it's, again, if a kid sees a problem they want to solve, they will go 50 to 100 miles an hour in learning the things that, that help them solve that problem. If you just put a kid through a dismal computer science, you know, AP computer science class with a not very good teacher presenting content and prepping you so you can get a four or five on the AP computer science exam, you know, I'm sure there are some kids that come out of that just really can't wait to do more coding in their life. But I would bet the majority come out saying, you know, I tried it. It just wasn't that interesting. And the assignment, when you're done with it, dies. <laughs> There's no purpose right, where right, these right. apps, and even if you're not solving the problem, at least you're thinking about a problem that's relevant to you and has context in your own world and your life. Right. So, and, and, you know, and the other thing that's true, because when you talk to these kids taking AP Computer Science, they say, my assignment is just like the other 12 kids in my class, which is just like the other 420,000 kids worldwide that are taking this class. You know, like, whether I do this assignment or not, nothing changes, right? I'm just doing something everybody else is doing because somebody who designed this course thought it was a good thing to do. And, mm. and, and by and large, and there's study after study that shows this, they forget it. You know, they may, you may think you've learned logical branch points, but unless you really use it all the time, you, you forget it in no time. You know, it's really different when a kid says, you know, if I don't get this done, you know, my community could have a higher rate of infectious disease. If I don't have this done, some of my classmates that are dealing with depression, you know, might, might actually have something really bad happen to them. You know, like, like the difference in motivation and the difference in, you know, these kids that are defining something to address a problem they've seen, they're coming through their school experience with a real sense of purpose. You know, and, and these other kids are coming through their school experience with a sense of placement. You know, and it, and and those worlds are really radically different. And, and and I would say you put any kid through twelve to sixteen years of school where the entire focus is on placement instead of purpose, you have largely impaired that kid's prospects in life. Yeah. 
And when you think about the role of the teacher in this, what resources, is there any nuance in how teachers provide resources to students in this? You know, I'm thinking about the example of um, the population projection. Do they give any sort of frameworks for how people have projected populations in the past or any theories or any sort of approaches or is it a complete blank slate for the students? Have you seen any trends in how this is done well? Yeah, I think the teachers that I admire the most are the ones that do the least. Um, you know, so it's, it's really tempting as a teacher to, you know, once you've teed that up, is the kids say, oh, I don't even know where to start. And then you say, okay, hold on, hold on. Let me just give you a 10-minute hint. And, you know, and then you do that, and then kids work for about 15 minutes, and then they say, we really don't know what to do next. And then you say, okay, okay, let me just, you know. Th th those teachers have the very best of intentions, but what happens, right, is the kids realize that all they've got to do is say, I can't do it, and they'll be spoon-fed the answer. And the teacher then looks at this problem and says, oh my gosh, you know, like I, you know, do I really want to ask this? Because now I've got to be able to lead them through it. It's a very different thing where you just say, I don't really care if it takes us two days to get somewhere on this or five days, you know, um, let's work together. You know, like we're just going to scratch and claw our way as a class to going from nowhere to starting to have some sense of how to do this. And we're going to be teaching each other and critiquing each other, we're going to learn how to build on ideas that people, you know, instead of, instead of the first reaction to somebody else's idea being, this is really stupid, you know, kid says, well, what about religions? Does that play a role in it? If, if five kids all say, that's stupid, you know, like, this is biology, it's not religion. You want that, the role of the teacher there is to say, hold on a minute. There may be the germ of a really great idea in that insight, okay? And so suddenly the teacher, and, and I've seen this, right? Is that the teacher is not the expert on it at all. The teacher is the facilitator. The teacher is, no one's expecting the teacher to be the one who at the end of the two days or five days sits down and says, oh no, this is the way you do it. Boom, 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 and here's the right answer. Because in that particular case, just as predicting the basketball score, or just as, you know, 10 other things we could come up with, you know, there is no right answer but there are plausible, defendable answers, and there are creative answers, and there are you know, incredibly inspired answers. You know, that teacher is really putting it back on the kids to say, you're gonna, one of the things you're gonna take out of this class is figuring it out for yourself. And so you look at, you know, Coder Dojo, great example, right? Is, you know, instead of having the parent run the after-school programming groups, these kids are often teaching themselves. You know, and I think that's really powerful. And so, so I think the teachers, you know, what we need to do a better job of is getting the teachers those types of challenges. You know, and that's one of the things I'm working on, you know, with the initiative I'm involved with is to say, you know, these are where you can access some really creative, interesting things. Um, and, to, and to give everybody the support. You know, what you don't want to do is have a teacher tee this up with a class, have the class be baffled as can be, have somebody walk by the class and look and these kids are confused and they don't know what's going on and they're complaining because it's too hard and they're talking to each other and they're looking and trying to find somebody that's done it online and trying to understand that and everything else and have somebody say, this class, you know, this teacher's totally failed. They're doing the exact wrong thing. They're not teaching their kids. These, they're letting these kids flounder. I mean, that's, something's really wrong here. Well, you know, if you have a school environment like that, those types of exercises will disappear and you'll be back to 
teaching least squares curve fit, except then you'll be back to, well, we don't have time for statistics. And so then you'll be back to teaching integration by parts or, you know, hyperbolic cosine substitutions or something that, as I say, no adult ever uses, you know, and, and but with the teacher up in front, same old thing, trying their best to explain it, doing four examples, doing them all themselves, and then saying to the students, now do five homework problems. And if you can do those five homework problems, okay, I'll give you a test that has three near, you know, close neighbors to that. And if you get those right, obviously you're really good at math because you understand, you know, hyperbolic trig function substitutions. And, you know, never mind that you never know how to apply it, but never mind that you'll never use it again in your life. Never mind you can't even explain to somebody outside of this class what an integral is. You know, you're clearly learning because you did really well on your AP calculus test. Yeah. So, no, if, and, yeah, so go ahead. If the teacher, you're saying the best teachers do the least and they're really, really good at facilitating. Yeah, you know, what, it's, it's, it, it seems crazy, right? It seems mm -hmm. ironic, but, but it, I think it's true. What, what the, these teachers who are amazing who do the least, what do they do to make sure that the class is effective? You know, because I'm picturing even at, you know, in any classroom setting, and I'm going to be teaching a class this fall, bringing in this ambiguity, having it be such a radical shift in what the tradition from the traditional classroom, students, I, I'm sure will flounder and they'll be confused and they'll be trying to find a handlebar to grab onto for security. So these teachers who do the least, who are really good at facilitating, what are like three things that in exceptional facilitators do or these teachers do? So one of, one of my favorite teachers, he's in our film, is a, he's a chair of the applied physics department at Harvard. And if you observe his class, he says very little. I've been in some of his classes, and, and some of his classes go three hours. So I've been in a three-hour class of his where he said five minutes. He talked for five minutes, and the kids debated and discussed physics at Harvard for two hours and 55 minutes. Um, and, and he'll tell you he gets two complaints about his class. He'll get parents that say, I'm not spending $60,000 to send my kid to Harvard to have my, you know, the, their faculty member not do anything. And the second complaint he'll get from kids, you know, sometimes in his student reviews at the end, are the, my one complaint about this class is Professor Mazur didn't teach us anything. We had to learn it all ourselves. Um, you know, so, so what's he do that's different and why is it so transformational? Because if you look at his kids in his classes, they learn so much more science than kids in any other class in America, um, that there's something obviously interesting going on. And I can, mm -hmm. I'll give you an anecdote because it's not just a one-off with his class in, in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But first, he delivers really interesting challenges to them. So he retooled the way he teaches. You know, over the past 15 years, he's completely redone it. And so he used to teach the way he was you know, he learned, quote unquote learned, is, you know, he'd give a lecture, he'd write an equation on the board, students would copy down the equation, give homework problems that say shove these parameters in. If you can do it without a math error and without making units mistake, you clearly understood gravity or electrical forces or whatever. Well, now he gives them really qualitative conceptual questions. And so um, I'll give you an example. You know, which we, when I describe it, you'd say this is so easy, everybody's going to get it, but they don't get it. Um, an airplane's flying overhead, opens up the cargo bay, and drops a pallet of bricks out. 
And then he'll give them four options for what the trajectory of the bricks look like relative to the airplane. Well, you know, you would think that every kid would get that. Well, well they actually don't. It's actually a point of great discussion. And so he, he runs his physics class almost like a Socratic seminar in history where you and I and other kids will all have a few minutes to, to pick our own answer. What do we think happens in the real world when that actual thing happens? And then he organizes you, you know, the class into subgroups. And so three or four people that have differing answers will then debate. And at the end of the debate, they resubmit their answers. They don't have to agree with the other classmates, but they resubmit. And then he just says, okay, who thinks this happens? And some number of kids will do it. And he asks two or three to explain why. Who thinks this happens? This, this, and this. And over the course of these classes I've observed, you know, on many of the problems, maybe 5-10% of the students are right at the beginning. And that whole process of thinking about it yourself, coming up with your reasons, and then having to debate it, will take the entire class from 5-10% to 85%. And then when the people that have it figured out, because the real world does behave in certain ways, explain it, everybody else who was wrong kind of goes, ah, now I get it. And so you look at that and you say, whoa, you know, like a, a physics class at Harvard taught the way most of us would think a really good history class is taught, you know, debate, discussion, critiquing each other's rationale, trying to get the best of everybody in terms of coming up with it. He does his final exams with a, a format where half your grade is your own answer, but then you're in a group. And half your grade on your exam is what answer the group comes up with. So you might be right and I might be wrong, but if I convince the group that I'm right, you're stuck with my wrong answer. <laughs> And you pay a penalty for that. And so suddenly these kids get incredibly good at collaboration and listening to other people and drawing out arguments. And so, you know, my point there is that he has done an enormous amount of work to think about what's the right way to engage kids and get them to think about the thing that's really aligned with what his goal is. And his goal is not to teach kids to memorize formulas and say them back. His goal is to give them a real understanding about how the world works. So is this just a Cambridge-Harvard thing? You know, I backed this group in India that is really, you know, these are some of the best social entrepreneurs I've ever met. And their goal was to bring education, better quality education to low-income kids in dirt poor India. And so I connected them with Eric. And they basically, in a scrappy entrepreneurial way, got a bunch of retired Indian Institute of Technology professors to redo all of high physics, chemistry, and math to meet the exact format I just described that Eric has. And they're working with these low-income kids. They initially tried about half the learning centers had teachers and half had social workers. After the first year, they ended up, believe it or not, phasing out the teachers and just using social workers because the social worker cohorts did far better. But these kids, you watch these kids and they are so engaged their pass rate on the IIT entrance exam is 10 times the national average. And this is just after school, dirt poor, no resources, and no technology, right? And so these kids are just debating each other and trying to really gain insight into how the real world works. And what Eric found at Harvard, and we find the same way, you give a kid that understands the world a formula question and they get it. You give a kid that understands formulas, uh, how does the world work question, they don't get it. And it sort of begs the question, what's our goal in teaching science? 
Is it to memorize equations? Or is it to figure out how the world works? Um, I think most people would agree it's to figure out how the world works. So most of the, the conversation we've had on class, classroom design has centered around science. I'd be curious to hear your perspective on educators' role in helping students build character. You know, there's a lot of writing by Paul Tuff and Angela Duckworth, as well as a lot of the work happening at KIPP centered around character. What role do educators play in helping students develop empathy and collaboration and understanding their own social emotional intelligence and how to grow along those lines, as well as willpower and self-control? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I would start with saying, you know, if we wanted a better system to erode character, we probably couldn't top it with what we've got now, right? We, we, tell, we tell every kid your merit is based on breadth of vocabulary, essentially, and ability to do low-level procedural math problems quickly under time pressure. And so, so the be-all and end-all of, you know, kind of how you're pegged in school, how you're tracked, how everything goes is around those incredibly narrow skills. And so you've got, you know, for, for every 2% that's in the upper 2% on that, you've got 98% obviously that are not. And so most of our kids are getting a message on standard, from standardized tests that they're in some ways not, you know, a kid of that much potential. And, you know, the, the fact is, if you look at any study that's done on standardized tests and their ability to explain any variance later in life, it's incredibly slight. You know, I, I, even the college board, I think, says that SATs, uh, you know, explain it at most 18% of the variance of first year college GPA. You know, it's like, really? You know, like, like we have kids spending in aggregate $5 billion a year on test prep and tutoring for the SAT for something that's 18% of the variance of your first year GPA, which, by the way, has almost no predictive value on what happens in life. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the, the topic of grit is something that's been on my mind lately. And, and because I feel like we really need to distinguish between thoughtless grit and thoughtful grit. And I feel that all too often, school uses grit as an excuse for having kids get good at something useless. And so, so a kid will say to a teacher, why do I have to memorize a quadratic equation and, and, and know how to solve it? And the teacher can't tell them why. You know, the teacher can just say, generally, some bullshit line like, trust me, you'll use it someday, except they won't, right? I mean, even if you go into science, you know, you're not going to use a quadratic equation. Um, you know, but, but that's what we say. So drill, drill, drill on the quadratic equation, um, you know, and, and don't question whether it's a useful thing to drill on. You know, I call that thoughtless grit. And I think that, that we are doing a disservice to our kids and we're just collectively hallucinating when we say, okay, it doesn't really matter what we give them to do in class. It doesn't matter how irrelevant it is for them. It doesn't matter that they see no connection between what we're asking them to do and, and anything that's important to them in life. All this is fine because we're teaching them grit. You know, like shame on the people who, who put that argument forward. Now, thoughtful grit is a totally different thing. And, you know, as we were talking about with that history, you know, ways to organize a history exam, I am a huge fan of something that says, you know, if with one week to go, you know, just a computer program or a history essay or whatever, 
with one week to go, you are not there and it's way short of what it needs to be. Keep working, you know, like you're not done. And, and, you know, and it's like all the better is if when the course is over, if, if a kid continues to do it because they're just obsessed with making it really good because they're proud of it. And so I think there are a lot of things we can be doing in the terms of character formation. I, I, I'll give you another example. Back to, back to um, you know, if, depending on how your editing goes, some of these may seem totally incoherent. But, but to the teams of young girls doing smartphone apps to make their community better, you know, when I visit schools, I, I generally want to grab an air sickness bag when they describe their community service initiative, you know, you know, I'm not terribly religious, but I absolutely believe, you know, that, that we all have a reason to be here. I mean, our, our purpose in life is to make the world better in some way that, that leverages our talents and passions and interest. And, and, you know, that's really an important thing to communicate to kids, to help them understand is that you can, in fact, you know, change the path of the world, make it better in a way that it wouldn't be if you didn't exist. Well, what's the typical school do for community service? You know, some do nothing, which is actually not that bad compared to what the rest do. Because the rest will say, oh, yeah, we're, we are big believers in community service. And, well, how, how do you implement it? How's it work? Well, it's mandatory 20 hours a year. And, uh, you know, and we, we figure out what they're going to do. They get to pick between picking up trash in the schoolyard or uh, painting the bathroom on a Saturday or going to visit an old folks home or something. And, and then you say, well, what happens if a kid does something wrong? Oh, well, if they do something wrong, we are going to lower the boom. That's another 20 to 40 hours of community service. And, and you think about that and you say, are, if your objective is to make a kid equate community service with dull punishment, you, you are doing a masterful job of it, right? You, you have accomplished that in spades, you know, versus... The smartphone, you know, the, the young girl's doing a smartphone app. Find a problem you care about in your community and do something about it. I'm on the board of this great group in New York, um, but, but it's spread all over the country. It's called the Future Project. And um, if you haven't heard of them today, you will. In, in three years, people will talk to them, talk about them in the same way they talk about some of the, the most important nonprofits our country's ever had. But they go into 50 of the toughest, most challenged high schools in the country. And they just work with these kids and say, tell me something important you want to accomplish in your life. And, and then help the kids understand that if they can learn how to write better or to creatively solve problems or collaborate or be innovative, um, they can, in fact, make a difference in the world. And so these kids, it's transformational. They go from dreading school to can't, they can't wait to get into school. They go half an hour to an hour early in the morning. They go on snow days. They take their lunch tray during lunch to learn things. You know, kids want to learn. It's just they want to learn because they, they can see its benefit. And, and unfortunately, right now, the only benefit we can communicate, and this is not the teacher's fault. This is no child left behind, race to the top, a whole bunch of really unbelievably poorly thought out policy initiatives that basically say the reason you need to do this is we need to boost our standardized test scores. And, and you know, it's, we're just robbing kids in the most important years of their life and telling them, you know, that life is all about placement instead of purpose. And, and I think that's, you know, I think it's incumbent on any adult that realizes that to try to do something to change it. With these self-directed, passion-driven projects where students are 
finding problems in their community or for themselves. Isn't there a danger of students kind of living in their own world and not getting outside of it and understanding other people? And how should schools teach empathy and understanding people from different backgrounds? Because I think, especially, and I know this in a, in a lot of my communities, you know, if you've grown up in a, in a bubble of people of a certain class who look a certain way and act a certain way, it can be hard to step outside of your own identity and understand challenges other than the ones you face. You know, how should schools in that light teach empathy and, you know, other aspects of character that go along with that? Yeah. Well, well, back to the, back to today's status quo is, you know, the, the typical kid, I think, does nothing to get out of their bubble. I mean, you know, maybe, you know, in rich neighborhoods, the parents will pay for them to go to Costa Rica for two weeks and do a community service initiative that they can put on their college application. But fundamentally, they're spending all their time getting good at lacrosse and taking four AP courses and, you know, it's you know, sort of in some ways manufacturing things that look good for a college resume. The, the kids in, in the, the schools that are more challenged, you know, have a different set of issues, you know, but they by and large are, you know, just being pounded on, you know, because the school's budget depends on, you know, attendance levels and getting better on standardized tests. So, so our bar to do better is not a very high bar. Um, and, and so, as I say, when you start to say to kids, as I say, whether it's this smartphone app, you know, tied to a problem you see in your world that you want to make better or, um, you know, the, you know, find a problem you care about, what is it you want to accomplish? I mean, these, these kids immediately are being challenged to come up with something that will make somebody else's life better and different, you know, different and better. And, and I think that's the start, right? And, and then they're, they're really being encouraged to use their own energy, talents, passion, and learning to deliver something that actually makes real their goal. And, you know, and, and, and they're given and respected as, as they choose it. And so, sure, you know, a kid could come up and say, uh, you know, I want to I wanna, um, help my lacrosse. You know, like they could be in... Um, uh, let's let's take uh, where you're where you live. I mean, they could live in Atherton, and say, "I want to develop a smartphone app so that the lacrosse players don't have to memorize as much to do well on their AP exam." And you, you would hope that that they'd get pushback from the school that says, "God, that's a really hollow proposition." I mean, you can do better, but you know, a kid might think that's a way to make their community better. But I I think if you just again, the role of the adults is to to push the kids to say. You can do more. You, you know, when, when, we ask, when we ask adults to talk about the most transformational experience they had in their school years, and a remarkably high number will say, somebody that just intervened and said, I believe you can do more. I believe in you. You've got the ability to do something really great with your life. And, and I think the more we can say that to kids and then back it up with, you know, the, the authentic opportunities to do things that they get credit for that do make their world better, that do make a contribution, you know, we're, we're redirecting the focus, you know, 180 degrees from what it is today. And, and so do I think that would make kids more empathetic? I absolutely do. Um, because you're turning it around. You're saying the purpose of learning, the purpose of doing well is to come up with creative and interesting things to make your world better. 
And that, that could be a play. That could be a science experiment. That could be a nonprofit. But the criteria of merit is, have you done something that, that means the world's going to be better than it would have been if you hadn't done what you just did? And, you know, to me, that's, oh boy, that, that would be an incredibly inspiring start. If we could get four and a half million kids a year leaving our school system with the confidence and skills to do that for the rest of their lives, you know, we would, we would have a country nobody would ever, you know, we'd never look back on anything. So it sounds like I've been taking notes and kind of trying to codify all the different stuff you're saying about the ideal classroom, the ideal teaching experience. So, and tell me if I'm missing anything. It sounds like part of it is giving assignments that have no correct answers and kind of provide this space for innovation, ambiguity, and creativity that students are going to be facing in the real world. Usually on a topic that has a real impact that's of interest to the student, like the basketball, um, and can benefit the community. So it's not it's not just an assignment that's going to be thrown in the trash when it's done, but it's <laughs> it's going to be actually have manifest as impact in the world. And then you also mentioned being the teacher, being a facilitator, someone who speaks least is often most effective. And what they do do that's really effective is delivering interesting challenges and engaging the students in, in feedback and facilitation so the students own the experience. Um, you also mentioned structuring it so that students are talking about their assumptions, the, the systems that they're working through and work, um, as well as the environment that dares students to think bigger and critique more and supports that type of learning. And then also being gritty in the right ways on the, on the right things. I think you called it thoughtful grit. Are there any other aspects of the ideal classroom or the classroom that'll prepare students for the future that are important to note? Well, I, I think you've covered a lot. Your note taking is great. I mean, the, if I had one clarification it would be, you know, they're not always uh, challenges or assignments where there's no right answer. I mean, when you take look at Eric Mazur, when you drop that pallet of bricks out of an airplane, there, there is a trajectory that pallet of bricks is going to follow, you know, and so it's not, it's not as though somebody can defend, you know, dropping in a direct line straight down because that is not what it's ever going to do. Um, but it's, it's, it's assignments that the kids think are really interesting that have, that go beyond 30 seconds of answer, you know, and so thoughtful, engaging assignments, um, the, the peer to peer component, you know, and it's what, you know, these, these massively online open courses have failed at, I think, is that, is that there's no peer interaction. So the more you can get small groups of kids clustered together and helping each other, critiquing each other, you take a lot of the load off of the teachers, but you also teach kids critical skills in the process. I'd say the third is being able to, to explain when a kid gets good at this, what are they getting good at that's aligned with an important life skill or characteristic? And you know, I think at the end of the day, if you could get our classrooms or, you know, and then, you know, I th I'd say the last one is it's, it's very difficult. Somebody said at a conference I was at recently, when it comes to education, if you can measure it, it's probably not important. And, you know, it's, it's, that's an interesting thing, right? Is if you think about collaboration, you can assess it, you can evaluate it, but it, I, I, I defy anybody to come up with a way to measure one kid's ability to co collaborate and place them precisely. You know, you take a San Francisco kid's ability to collaborate and be able to say exactly where they stand relative to a Rhode Island kid's ability to collaborate. You know, no can do. You know? And 
you know, so if you're really saying we want to teach these essential skills, you know, which are most people boil them down to, you know, uh, inventive problem solving, teamwork, um, uh, figuring out complicated things, um, and being able to communicate across a bunch of different vehicles well, and then certain character traits. And, it, and if you say that those are what you really want the kids to get good at, then I think just looking to make sure your school experience is authentic in that respect, that, that the things you're insisting they're good at are aligned with that. And then I think that will take some level of courage by the community to say, okay, you know, th there's no guarantee, you know, there's no guarantee that this will improve our kids' chances of getting into the right college, or there's no guarantee that this will help our school boost its, its test scores so that we don't have our budget cut or be shut down. Um, but I think what I'm seeing across a lot of different examples, I mean, the Future Project's a great one. You know, these 50 high schools they work with are so under the gun. And if you talk to the principals, they say, I couldn't run my school without this program because an engaged student learns so quickly and a bored student doesn't learn much of anything. And so, you know, if you just give kids, you know, it's, it's what we all know intuitively, right, is that if a kid's excited about something, you know, they'll go 50 to 100 miles an hour. If they're bored, you know, we're talking about zero, one or two miles an hour. And if they're bored and we say we're going to hold the students and teachers accountable to standardized tests, you know, if we really pound on them enough, we might get it to go from one mile an hour to 1.1 mile an hour. But that's pointless, right? I mean, and that's, that's the folly of, of No Child Left Behind and Race to the Top. I mean, as I say, that's, that's got to be the biggest of all bipartisan swings and miss, you know, at policy, you know, in the last hundred years. I mean, it makes, it makes our Middle East strategy look not as stupid as it's been, you know, so, um, you know, it's just been a massive, colossal screw up. And, uh, you know, and I think we've got to stop feeling like we've got to stick with something that was a bad idea. We've got to have the courage to say, we tried it, you know, we picked the wrong goal and we pounded on it for 20 years and we didn't even make progress on the wrong goal while we hurt all sorts of other important things. So let's, let's dump that and, you know, my soundbite on that is, you know, we're the most innovative, creative country on earth. Why don't we educate to our strength instead of chasing Singapore and Korea? And I, so far, nobody said to me, boy, that's a bad idea. And we're trying to measure everything and innovation and creativity, you know, which are essential skills and character traits. Those are immeasurable. So it's right. hard to have a system so focused on measurement where the most important qualities are measurable. Yeah, and you, and you can you can you know there's this huge distinction. You can evaluate and assess. You can provide great feedback. You just can't rank, order, measure it across hundreds of thousands of other kids. And and so we can either. I mean, that's our existential choice with education. We can either teach things that are hopelessly irrelevant and measure them precisely, or we can teach things that are vitally important and rely on trust and assessment and evaluation. That's our choice. And, and we've had 20 years of policy that says we don't care how irrelevant it is. Our top priority is precise measurements and accountability. You know, and it's, it's been, a, a, as I say, a colossal failure. Who disagrees with you on this and what's their perspective? Well, I think, you know, I'm, I'm really encouraged because as I go around the country with the film and then, um, you know, I, I do all these Q&A sessions. I'm sure... Um, 
you know, I'm sure if you were designing tests for, you know, the college board, you'd probably disagree with me. Um, you know, some traditionalists will, you know, I, I'll get math people that will say, well, it, it, it's, you know, learning how to do closed form integrals by hand teaches you how to think. And so it's important. And, and I'll say to them, you know, understanding how a 1940 carburetor works is something that actually we needed to do when we were driving cars in 1940 and teaches you how to think. But that doesn't mean, you know, that, that the kids that are learning how to drive today should be spending all of their time memorizing the parts of a carburetor, <laughs> you know, when modern cars don't even have them. Um, you know, it's, it's like you can teach kids to think in a lot of ways. But there's some traditionalists and there's some, I think mostly the issue here is not people who thought about it hard and say, no, you're wrong. I think it's people that haven't thought about it hard. You know, the people that just instinctively say, schoolwork for me, why should we change it? And, you know, I get a lot of business people that will say, it's these damn teachers unions. You know, like, you'll never fix schools unless we just break up the teachers unions. And somehow that's where all the evil is being done. And, and I say back to them, that's just, that's just so misdirected. You know, like when I visit schools, almost always the teachers are really dedicated they just don't believe in their mission anymore. Um, you know, but, but a lot, I'll tell you who else would disagree with me. A lot of the largest foundations in the country and the Department of Education, um, and they're all bought in to accountability. And what's their and, counter argument? I think, well, you have to know. You know, you know you, we have to, you know, if we're going to spend a lot of money on this, we have to know how we're doing. You know, it's like, it's like it's a given. We have to know. And we, not only do we have to know, but we have to know every six weeks. And, you know, and so they'll say, you know, if, if you don't think standardized tests are the right thing, what are we replacing it with that can tell us on a six-week by six-week basis that things are going in the right direction? You know, and it's like, it's like applying paint-by-numbers criteria to Van Gogh. I mean, it's just as like, you know, as I say, you can either – teach irrelevant things and measure precisely or teach important things and trust. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, probably as loud a business advocate for the trust side of things. And, the, you know, I'm just saying, is our priority in education engaging and inspiring kids or testing and measuring them? And, you know, I, I'm as loud a voice as I can be on the engage and inspire front. And, and I don't feel like, you know, like I, I feel like with any kid, I mean, show me what's going on when they're 40 years old and we'll begin to get a sense of whether what happened when they were growing up worked or not. But how many kids, you know, look perfect, right? I mean, you know, it's a perfect kid syndrome. Everything looks perfect for them up through college, except once they're in college, they fall apart. They're so fragile. The first time they get a bad grade, you know, they're, they're you know, the, the data on college students at our elite universities, and how many report feeling hopeless? How many report feeling chronically depressed? How many report feeling completely adrift? You know, it's not 3%, it's not 5%, it's the majority. You know, and so tell me, tell me how those measurements, you know, ha have helped us prepare those kids for a great, productive, healthy, self-satisfied, rewarding life. No, and, and I think we've just, we're just trashing these kids. And I can speak from personal perspective because I graduated 
pretty recently, about two years ago from undergrad. And there's a certain sort of conditioning that I've seen happen in the schools where students are given content that they react to and then perform to, <laughs> you know? Yep. And, you know, if you do that for the first 20 years of your life or 18 years of your life, you that that that's what you know and that's what you're good at and you're going to stick with what you're good at. So, you know, it comes time to to it being senior year and now there are these organizations that are recruiting and there's kind of the traditional routes and it's good for some people but I've also seen some students kind of go into it because they they don't know any alternatives such as investment banking and right. consulting and nothing against that but I just see some people kind of making those choices because it seems like something they quote should end quote do and then I see the same kind of habit of you know they're, they're like oh I should do this and then they do it, and now it's two years later, and they're like, shoot, now what do I do? Because they've never had this, this ambiguity that they've been faced with in the classroom that then carries out into their old, the rest of their yeah. life. And that's why something that we're thinking a lot about at Make School is how do we make sure that students are learning how to learn so that they build this habit that they can kind of self-direct their own learning for the rest of their lives instead of waiting for this content to get in front of them. And how do they start thinking about how they want to design their life and spend their time? Because you never get that prompt in college. Yet that's right. what your life consists of for the next 50, 60 years. So that's something that, you know, when you're talking about ambiguity and creativity and innovation, those are things that you're going to face. You're going to face those challenges at some point. And I'd rather have faced them for the first 20 years of my life in eight, you know, 40 hours a week than when I'm getting out of school. So it, it's, it's not only that these are things that students should face, it's that they're going to face, and are you going to prepare them or not? Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and would you rather prepare them in a safer environment or in a, you know, once they're out in the real world with $150,000 of debt? Yeah. Um, you know, and it, as I said, it's, it's, you know, but I think the, the film that, that um, yeah, I'm such a big fan of. I, I didn't direct it, but it shows things from the parent's perspective, and it's hard for a parent, right? It is um, you know, you, you sort of every parent wants things to be perfect for their kid, and so you know, so you think about the slippery slope, right, where the kid's written an essay for school, and you just feel like as a parent, I just feel like I've got to review it, right? I just need, you know, like I. I want to make sure that they did their best work. And so you review it. But you don't just review it, but you fix it. And, and the kid has gone to sleep, but you're still editing that essay. And so the essay that goes in, and, and I'll find this all the time as parents will talk about their kids' schoolwork using the term we. You know, we're working on our college application. We're studying for SAT exams. We're, you know, we're, you know, we didn't quite have the grades we wanted first semester, but we're working on it and we're going to really turn that around second semester. And, and, you know, it's, as I say, it's a genetic thing. It's just this impulse we have as parents to make everything right for our kids. But, you know, then what happens, right, is that the kid is, you know, maybe on margin gets into a little bit better college than they would have otherwise. But, you know, you, you can talk to any college president and they'll tell you about the parents that then call them to complain that the professor didn't make it clear what their kid needed to do to get a good grade in college. And, and you can talk to people that hire kids out of college and the parents that will complain to the boss because they got a bad performance review and you didn't make it clear to my kid 
what they needed to do to get a good performance review at your company. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's the, the short term versus the long term. And as you say, I, 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 you know, and it's not, as I say, it's not without its issues. I mean, you know, if you back off and just say, my kid's work in high school is going to be my kid's work. My kid's college application is going to be their application, not mine. You know, it's quite possible they get into a marginally worse college. And, uh, and then I think parents just have the, need to have the conviction. That's my advice is to mm-hmm. say, you know, I care a lot more that you took on this process and did it than I care where exactly you got in. You know, and uh, but but parents, particularly type A parents, just obsess about that stuff. So we have a really action oriented audience. Um, and since you have a background in venture capital and in, which for those who aren't aren't familiar with the investment space, this is uh, companies that invest money in startups and earlier stage companies. And do you invest in ed- education technology companies at all? Uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting, but for the longest time in venture, we just turned them all down, you know, and, um, you know, it was easy. We, we, we would say that the people who buy products in education make bad decisions slowly and they have no budgets. Um, huh. Why'd you say that? Well, because it was true for years, right? I mean, you try to sell to a school system or you try to sell, um, but my firm is, you know, like, and I'm, I'm personally an investor in Flatiron, which is really an alternative higher ed offering. Um, we, we did the firm did the first round of Udacity. I wasn't like the biggest believer in that, you know, in the in the MOOC model. But anyway, um, and then I've got some personal investments and in things. But you know, I I feel like, you know, what I'm not interested in, and what I think is really silly is stuff that you, you know, thinking that it's an advance to take stuff you can look up easily that you don't have to know, and put an app on an iPad so that you can memorize the elements of the periodic table or something like that. That's just, I look at that and I just say, when are we going to come to our senses about that? Right. I mean, you're like, like the, the last thing anybody needs to do is drill forever to memorize, you know, what the atomic number is of oxygen on an iPad when it's right there. You know, it's like, it's right there. Yeah. I mean, that makes no sense to me, but I think so- that so for people interested in, or sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, that's good. Go ahead. I was going to say, so for people interested in their own, developing their own education and technology, I'd love to hear your perspective on how ed tech has transformed and maybe the different stages of where investments were being made, um, you know, maybe say seven or eight years ago, because I know that's when a lot of the boom started to happen. Um, what were the types of companies that people were investing in and how did that change throughout the years until where we are now? Well, I think a lot of it, and I, th- I think they're good business reasons, have been to take, you know, the, the same obsolete stuff we've done, and try to modernize it. And and I think people have done that. And so, you know, the whole big data will track. You know, there are a whole wave of these things that basically say the current model's great or fine or good enough, and let's optimize that. And so let's figure out ways to teach, you know, calculus better online, or let's figure out a way to take the data from test scores and you know, personalize the learning so that a kid knows exactly what their next lesson is or things like that. And technically, and I, technically what's happening with these things? What's the new technology that people are getting excited about for this that's making it easier in, in theory? Well, you know, like I, I think one of the misunderstood things, and, I, and I'm, I'm personally, you know, friends with Sal Khan and love what he's doing, but I think a lot of people think of Khan Academy as, the, the end of it, you know, that that's all education needs to be is, 
watching lectures online and doing multiple choice questions. And, you know, if a kid sits in front of a laptop and does that eight hours a day or 10 hours a day, they're going to get a great education. And if you read his book or I, I you know, work with him and helped out on getting a, a lab school going in, Pal in Mountain View, you know, that's the furthest thing from what he thinks. I mean, he feels like kids need to have more authentic challenges and that the contribution of, of what he's doing is really to be access things that help you understand a specific thing to solve a problem. And so, you know, so, you know, one, one school of thought would be Khan Academy 24-7 or, you know, 10-7 or whatever. And the other school, you know, half an hour to an hour of the day is a means to the end of accomplishing things. And, you know, and I think the second view makes all sorts of sense. And the first view strikes me as, as dreadful. Um, so what do you think the future of education technology looks like? Well, you know, no, I, you know, there are two different things, the future of education and the future of education technology. And, you know, the distinction I draw is the important thing in shaping education priorities and strategy is to understand what technology is doing in the world around us, not so much in taking a lesson that's been given for 40 years and, and modernizing it by putting it, you know, online somehow. And, so it's technology-aware education instead of technology-embedded education. And so what do I think the future is? I think the future is, a, is one where you understand that any, any young adult has resources at their fingertip that make them dramatically more productive than even our most talented adults were in 1980. It's all there. And if we just educated, assuming that you had access to all these resources, and now said, how can you be uber productive with that, you know, we, nobody would stop. I mean, we'd be so far ahead. I say to, I say to the states I go to that, that, you know, if you're ranked in the, the bottom, you know, quartile in U.S. states on standardized test scores, you know, you could do the same old stuff and move from 43rd to 41st over 10 years and, and really don't, wouldn't have helped your students at all. But if you really think about education differently, not just better than any other state in the U.S., you could be way better than Finland. And, I, and I've been there. And, uh, you know, because, again, it's like, it's like well, so what do we know? I mean, take, take a perfect example, right? Is the, it used to be that humans were way, way better than computers at chess. Now computers are better than the best human at chess. But what's interesting to me is that you can take a pretty good chess player with a pretty good computer program and they will beat the world's best computer or the world's best human at chess. And so how do we visualize a world just brimming with resources and productivity gains and use those to turbocharge what kids get out of their education experience? And that's, that's what people aren't really in my, you know, my walking around classrooms, nobody's thinking about that because that's called cheating, right? You know, it's, like, it's, like, it's like if you think that you, you have any kid in America has Wolfram Alpha on their smartphone, so that any kid can essentially be perfect on almost every math problem that a kid faces in grade 8 through 12. So think about that, right? A bad math student today as an 8th grader with a little bit of training on Wolfram Alpha, Alpha would be an A-plus student through 12th grade compared to any other student in America, Okay. So, so why not, right? Why not just say it's there? You know, you don't have to 
learn hyperbolic cosine substitutions because that's just low level bullshit. You know, it's like that doesn't teach you how to think. That teaches you how to do mechanical procedures quickly without an error. And this was, I did it well. I mean, I got a PhD in math modeling. I, I was good at hyperbolic cosine transformation. So I'm not saying that with a chip on my shoulder. I'm just saying it has nothing to do with understanding calculus. And, and so why, why revisit that? Why spend nine months in high school calculus teaching all this stuff that you could cover in a week with you know, just an orientation on Wolfram Alpha and then spend eight months and three weeks apply it and solve interesting problems with it. So if I, yeah, yeah, go so ahead. So that's right. It's that simple. It's the same thing. You know, it's uh, you know, and and I could say the same thing about any subject. You know, like what, why, why do we insist that every kid take the exact wrong amount of a foreign language as a graduation requirement? We we insist to graduate from high school that everybody take the two years of a foreign language, or in some states, three, which at the end of that period, the kid knows nothing. They can't speak, they can't put together one fluent sentence in the language. And we say, done, check mark. You know, you've, take, you've satisfied your foreign language requirement. You know, like, give me a break. I mean, it makes no sense. And so, um, you know, so as I say, it's, it's like really re-envisioning what can be done and what, what kids are capable. Because what, what, if I had to summarize it, adults will tell me, on a fairly regular basis, it's amazing. Once a kid gets interested in something, they can become an expert in a week. And, and I say back, shouldn't that have profound implications for the way we structure the school experience? If a kid's interested, they can know more about the Civil War in a week than the teacher knows. If a kid's interested, they can know more about geometry. That, you know, it's like, like a kid that gets interested, and not just, you know, it's not like the so-called gifted kids, it's any, a kid that's interested gets really good at this stuff. You know, why not, you know, why not play to that strength instead of ignore it? So what I find fascinating, I was going to ask you a question. Um, which technologies can help students expedite their learning curve? Or, you know, would you suggest to adult learners who want to get good at, let's say, guitar, or become a better writer, become better at coding? What I was going to, I was going to ask what technology can help expedite that learning, but it sounds like you're almost looking at it from a different perspective of like educator. You shouldn't be just thinking about what technology can expedite the learning because all the methods are online. <laughs> you know, the thought yeah. leaders are there, all the information, you know, Google is, is ranking higher the things that are viewed more. And those are likely from established thought leaders. And, you know, you're not going to get the perfect thing, but if you, if you search around enough, you'll find the right answers or at least enough advice to get you going on the right track. So maybe it's not that technology is supporting and expediating our learning. It's that we ourselves, by being interested, now can expediate our learning because the technology is yeah. already there. It's there. And it's there in life. So why not make it there in school? And, and then have kids learn the things. You know, it's, it's writing. A perfect example is that if you're a gifted writer, there's enormous numbers of opportunities that are come your way. If you're a mediocre writer... You know, there there are already you know software programs that can can crank out you know decent prose readily and efficiently. And so you know, like let's just set our sights high. You know, like like you know, why shouldn't kids be able to use spell check on a test? You know, like why 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 do we continue to hammer dyslexics in school because they can't spell well when all right there? Just it's just it's, as I say, it's technology aware education instead of technology enabled. It's, it's just saying teach people things 
you know, you know, leverage what computers are good at and teach and help people be great at the things computers struggle with or can't do well. And you'll be light years ahead of anybody else, you know, globally. And, you know, it's, it's really boils down to being that simple. What are some problems in education or, or questions on your mind that you wish you had the answer to now, but you don't, and you're really curious about getting that answer? Well, I, th I think there are open questions. You know, we, we talked before about software engineers and how GitHub, and so how do you, how do you um, develop a really good system to represent authentic measures of a kid's progress and work online that can be viewed efficiently? You know, I, I mean, I think there's some really encouraging things going on. I don't think that's a totally solved problem, and I think that's really interesting. Um, how do you... Um, you know, how do you deal with, um, you know, I think one of our big issues is, you know, the number of kids that in sixth grade, you know, are not reading at the second grade level that are just coming from really incredibly difficult circumstances. And so how do we return to a society that, that gives those kids, you know, it tends to level the playing field and give those kids every chance. Whereas today, and again, I fault, you know, a lot of it is our testing mentality. I mean, like the kids in, Richmond, California, if, if the figure of merit is breadth of vocabulary, which, you know, the SAT and college board would tell you, oh, you're wrong. You know, they, we're testing more on the verbal part of the SAT or the, the verbal part or language arts, or whatever the hell they call it, on these state standard of learning tests than just breadth of vocabulary. It is ultimately breadth of vocabulary. I mean, you know, like, like that is that is the vast majority of it. So the Richmond, California kid on breadth of vocabulary and low level math procedures quickly is always going to be in a tough situation relative to the kid in Atherton. If if we start to have authentic measures of not not number measures, but ways to show a kid that has incredible determination and resourcefulness and resilience and is bold, I actually think those Atherton kids are probably at a disadvantage. And so um so a system, you know, that starts to transform itself um, and, and addresses the fact that we're all ultimately lazy, right? You know, it's like we, we all are looking for quick, easy ways to, to get an answer. And so we'll look at where somebody went to college or we'll, colleges will look at SAT scores or we'll look at just the simplest of things because it's a lot harder to tell whether somebody's got that special spark of determination that just it doesn't matter. They're going to get this job done no matter what versus a kid that had high grade point average. And so, you know, but I think it's a business opportunity. I think the businesses that can think that through and hire the right way will have an advantage over the businesses that find the cheap and easy, but I think increasingly ineffective approaches. Have you seen any good practices in, in your portfolio companies or other companies on how to create this sort of atmosphere of innovation and facing ambiguity and creativity? And any sort of case examples? Well, you know, I think the whole reason startups do well is, um, you know, I mean, big companies have enormous resources relative to a 10-person startup, but, you know, they sort of believe in a mission. So, so pure startups, I think, represent, in many ways, the best of all things in our country. And, and you just look at net job creation and, and economic growth and productivity drive and everything, and it's, it's largely the startups that make that happen. Um, you know, in classrooms, I think it's a harder thing. But I think, as I say, if if 
if you've got risk-averse measures of progress, you're going to have risk-averse behaviors in the classroom. And so, um, you know, but I think if you, if you highlight bold and great and above and beyond, you know, if, if those are the things that really count, then you start to have a very different set of characteristics and behaviors in the classroom. Awesome. And so I understand that you're about to go on a little tour to get your message out. And could you tell us a little bit about that? And I, I understand there's also a film coming out. <laughs> I would love to hear what's going on. Well, the film, we, we premiered the film at Sundance um, in January. And, uh, you know, we just got off to an incredible start there. I mean, first, it's really hard to get into Sundance. Um, and so we got in, and then we ended up doing, while we were there, we did nine total screenings. And what's which, the film? Um, it's Just called Most Likely to Succeed. Okay. And so it's really a look at what school could be. Um, but it's a very uplifting, inspiring film. And uh, so anyway, so we've been at a, at a bunch, of, a slew of the top film festivals. We've been kind of opening night featured at a bunch of major education conferences. We're getting more than 100 schools a week asking us, uh, you know, wanting to screen it at their school. You know, I've turned down... Netflix on this because I, I really feel its power is bringing a community together and getting excited about a, a different vision of what school could be. And so, you know, so I feel like if it, once it's online and free, you know, the kind of the, the, the drive to bring people together and watch it together and engage in debate sort of disappears. And so that was my decision on that. Um, and so, you know, I've just, and then I've seen it work, you know, in a couple of our early pilots, you know, when we can get districts and states excited about it, it has enormous leverage and power. And so I'm basically going to be traveling this entire next school year to all 50 states trying to engage with, you know, secretaries of education and legislators and district superintendents and principals, as well as parents and teachers and business people and philanthropists, but just bring, use the film as a vehicle because it's a great film. I mean, it's, it's, I think a lot of people who watch it tell us, the feedback we get is, this is far and away the best film ever done on education. And, uh, and it's compelling. I mean, it's beautifully filmed, and it's got a great story that keeps you totally locked in. And so I'm using that as kind of a convening mechanism and just taking it broadly and try to get as many you know, states, districts, communities, cities, saying, wait, we, you know, we could screw around and try to eke out a a 4% gain in standardized test scores and tend, send out all our kids into the adult world ill-prepared. Or we could just say, screw that. We're doing something really different. And, and we're going to have schools that kids can't wait to get into. We're going to have schools where dreams come to flourish instead of die. And we're going to look for ways in which every kid's capable and gifted instead of all the ways kids aren't. And, and we're going to get kids excited about learning as a means of accomplishing something they care about. And you know, and if what goes by the wayside is we're not going to, you know, be monitoring things on a weekly basis with standardized test scores, so be it. Um, we just have a different vision of what, what we need to be doing. And if someone wants to see a, a showing or get involved in support in one way, how should they go about doing that? Well, the website is, um, the best URL now is www.thefutureofschool.us. But it, the title of the film is Most Likely to Succeed. So if you just Google Most Likely to Succeed documentary or um, we've got a bunch of URLs, but, but the one I like is www.thefutureofschool.us. Right on the homepage it says host a screening and it, tells, it 
click on that and it, it helps with everything you need to do to make that happen. Awesome. And if people are interested in learn, diving more into these issues or reading other works of, of other leaders, who would you recommend? Well, the website we've got has a fairly extensive list of other people we think make a lot of sense on this issue. And so I would say, you know, there are a whole bunch, and some of them are in the film, but I'd say the website, we sort of lay out really great articles, really great TED Talks, really great books. Um, so a whole set of resources that could be useful to anybody that wants to kind of come up to speed on this. Awesome. Great. And do you have any other thoughts before we close out? This has been tremendously insightful for me, at least. <laughs> and I'm sure that the, the, all the listeners are excited by it, too. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I, I do have a, uh, this book coming out um, you know, soon on. It, it's uh, Simon & Schuster's the publisher with Tony Wagner, and it's also conveniently got the same title, Most Likely to Succeed, but it's got a lot more, the book just sort of follows a couple students and their teachers. The book's got a lot more specifics about things that don't make sense in school, but things that are happening that are really inspiring. And then um, at some point, we have more details around the, the nationwide tour on the website, and I'm actively looking for people, you know, I call them change agents, but anybody that's out there that says, I know this is an urgent problem. I know we could do so much better. And I really care about it. You know, I, I am like begging, begging for any and all help I can get. Because, and, and I'm voting with my feet by going everywhere and uh, trying to bring together the people in each community that really believe the same thing. Because I think that the country's just ready for it. I think people are ready to see something really different. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for all these insights and perspective. And, um, for the students out there, I, I wish you a good trip to your next classroom. Uh, and this is a lot of fun. I really appreciate it, Ted. And um, great. looking forward to the movie soon. Awesome. Great. Great questions. I really appreciate what you're doing. Awesome. All right. Take care. Thanks. Yeah, bye-bye. This podcast is and always will be ad-free. But we rely on listeners like you to show us the love and subscribe. It helps others find the show, so please write us a review on the App Store by going to make.sc slash podcast review. You can also go to make.sc slash podcast to see the show notes, and we invite you to leave comments, join in on the discussion, and tell us what you think of the episode.